Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Welcome to Back from the Borderline, the podcast that helps anyone who identifies with the symptoms of BPD overcome their biggest obstacle, themselves. I'm your host, Molly, and I am here to help you realize that anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. So we're here, back together again. It has been a deep couple of weeks with the subject matter here on Back from the Borderline. We went really deep, really existential, and really healing. And I cannot tell you the amount of emails I've received about last week's episode. The impact that the two voicemails from the two women last week bearing their soul about their struggles with addiction and heartbreak, it cracked open a floodgate of feedback from you listeners. And so I want to thank those two listeners who shared so vulnerably in some of their darkest moments because it touched so many of you listeners. And this is exactly why I wanted to start the voicemail thing because So many of you reported that you heard yourself in the voices of these two women and I heard myself in their voices and it's because we're all going through very similar struggles in this life. So thank you to those two beautiful, beautiful people who opened their hearts up. And if you'd like to submit your own voicemail or share your thoughts back to these two women, use the voicemail feature on my website to do things like that. That's what it's there for too. So you can go to backfromtheborderline.com and click the microphone icon that pops up and leave me a voicemail. Use it to share how the podcast has impacted your life. Use it to respond to other listeners who have called in. Use it to ask a question to share a success that you've had, anything that you like, it's there for. Be creative with that voicemail feature. Also, in other news, I released the first episode of a series that I'm producing exclusively for my premium subscribers, where I walk them through each step of the hero's journey. I created only one episode of this series to see if it's something that my subscribers would like and damn, I got a lot of positive feedback so the rest of that series is on the way. So to my premium subscribers, you can expect more of those episodes. I put a ton of research and effort into these particular types of episodes so 
It'll be a couple of weeks before more of those are out, but they are coming soon. If you would like to access that and you don't already subscribe to Premium, you can go to backfromtheborderline.com and click unlock Premium episode to get a head start and listen to that first part of the series. So I told you that we are going to lighten the mood, but it's actually kind of an LOL moment because lightening the mood on the Back From The Borderline podcast, we're talking about stoic philosophy and porn today, (laughs) which is my version of lightening the mood. But just so you know what to expect, we'll be starting out by diving into a quote that's inspiring this week from a stoic philosopher that has had a big impact on my recovery journey then around eight minutes in we'll be diving into the main topic at hand which is the effect pornography can have on our sense of self and well-being which was inspired by an interview Billie Eilish did last year on the Howard Stern show that I came across just this week. And then at around minute 50, we'll be finishing up with a sneak preview of this week's premium access episode where I react to a YouTube video created by a woman who claims to help individuals overcome what she calls, quote, borderline abuse. Now, I've seen this phrase of borderline abuse a lot in the more stigmatized and damaging content I've run into online since I've started my whole recovery process from BPD traits. So I think it's really important that I spend some time debunking this kind of material. So without further ado, let's just dive right in, shall we? I want to start a new tradition today on the podcast. As I've shared before, reading the words of some of the wisest and most profound thinkers and philosophers has been a really big part of my recovery journey. We are so often told in conventional wisdom today that in order to be successful in life, we need to build our career, get a ton of social media followers, have a big house with a bunch of expensive shit, have happy children, and continue to gain value in this way. And what it is is this never-ending finish line that you can never really achieve. And the irony is, in my life, I've realized that the people that I've met who are the richest in the cultural sense, they are always just as unhappy as I am. And what that tells us is living on this, what is often called the hedonic treadmill, just chasing what society is telling us is going to bring happiness is actually not what's going to create a happier and more fulfilled life. And We need to be thinking about becoming more resilient, mastering and knowing ourselves. That's what actually brings true satisfaction. Once I started filling my time with reading the words of great thinkers and philosophers, I realized that it can really help me reset my priorities And it really helps weaken the hold that other people's opinions have on me. It helps me laugh at 
the little things that come up in my day that would normally really throw me off balance. And it really helps me focus on my values and my priorities. For those of us who identify with the symptoms of BPD, the most important thing that we should be focusing on to head toward recovery is what's called self-mastery. So I want to take the opportunity to share some quotes from amazing thinkers and philosophers on the podcast that specialize in the art of self-mastery. And self-mastery is a lifetime pursuit. What I love about these philosophers and thinkers is that they knew that building a life worth living is a lifetime process. There is no finish line. And that's the joy of it. So without further ado, here is our first quote that I want you to meditate on for this week. And it's all about control. Of all existing things, some are in our power and others are not in our power. In our power are thought, impulse, will to get and will to avoid, and in a word, everything which is our own doing. Things not in our power include the body, property, reputation, office, and in a word, everything which is not our own doing. Things in our power are by nature free. This quote is by Epictetus, who is a Greek philosopher born almost 2,000 years ago. And this concept of control is powerful enough to stick around for thousands of years. It's even influenced cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's spoken about so often in self-improvement circles. The idea here is to take action toward things that you have control over and forget about the things that you don't have control over. Epictetus was one of the founders of Stoicism, a philosophy that encourages people to not sweat the small stuff and to instead focus on how we respond to our circumstances over making sure they go exactly the way we want. And I thought this was a really beautiful quote to bring up this week because I was reflecting just this week on how much I struggle with control and how that struggle and me wanting to control how I felt, how others felt, how people would react, things in my life that I had absolutely no control over, my struggle to control them really resulted in me feeling disappointed in my life. It pushed people further and further away from me. It contributed to so much of my general dissatisfaction. And so I hope that the words of this Greek philosopher can help you realize that you just need to not sweat the small stuff. What are things in your life that you're trying to control that you don't have any control over? And what are things that you can control, which is yourself and your reactions? That's about it. So if you decided this week just to focus on those things, how much different would your mental state feel? That's your challenge for this week. So from here, let's dive into the primary topic that I wanted to discuss today, 
For long-term listeners of the podcast, you know that I've talked in detail about something that I call sex as self-harm. It's well known that people who identify with symptoms of BPD have a complicated relationship with sex and intimacy, myself included. And when people who are diagnosed with BPD are brought up, there are some really problematic words in my perspective used, like the phrase sexual acting out and hypersexuality or promiscuity. And these terms to me are very clinical and they don't exactly embody or encompass very accurately what's actually going on in the minds of those of us who identify with these symptoms and how it actually feels. Because during the time that I was the most sexually active from the outside, it could so easily be seen as what a slut for a stereotypical man who is highly sexually active, they may receive the message from society that is, oh, great job, good job, boys will be boys. The point I'm trying to make here is that real human beings get lost in these societal stereotypes. And what I've heard from people who identify with BPD all across the gender spectrum. They've told me that when they were the most sexually active, they felt the most empty inside and they were either called sluts or it was either laughed off. But what was happening inside was that they were using sex in the best way that they knew how to fill that empty void inside of them or to distract them from the painful feelings that they were feeling. And That is the dialogue that I think needs to be so desperately opened up for everyone, regardless of their gender or sexuality. Society is really pushing us to be hypersexual and say, oh, it's okay to do that. But while I, in one breath, absolutely it's okay to do that, as long as you're not losing yourself in the process. But for so many of us, We follow this narrative of hypersexuality and we find ourselves lost. We find that we are using sex as a form of self-harm and as a coping mechanism. And as someone who never struggled with classic forms of self-harm that are so often stereotypically linked with BPD traits like cutting or constant suicidal threats, I feel like there is this stereotypical image of the BPD person and it's typically a girl and it's typically someone who's cutting and threatening to kill themselves all the time. And my heart goes out to anyone who is displaying these behaviors and maybe does fit that stereotypical image. I'm not trying to discount that. But what I think that 
that stereotype does is that it means that other behaviors that we really need to talk about, they get lost in the sauce. And I feel like many people who identify with what's known as quiet BPD, which as we've discussed, it's not necessarily a thing. Quiet BPD is not recognized by the DSM, but I know many people who absolutely identify with with what is known as quiet BPD, which means that we're kind of acting inward. People who identify with quiet BPD are often seen as more, quote, high-functioning. And I think that there was a time in my life where I was not as functioning, and then the time that I was using sex as self-harm, the world outside would have seen me as very high-functioning. But behind the scenes, I was struggling. And because we live in a society where it's very common and shouted about to say, oh yeah, girl, like empower yourself. If guys can have sex with as many people as they want, then you can too. And so I really bought into that. But what I realized was that because I'm extremely emotionally sensitive, extremely emotionally under controlled, and I got really attached to people when I was intimate with them, which is very normal. I also didn't recognize that I was using intimacy and sex to try to fill a void. And that's where the problem begins. Now, what I want to talk about today is porn and the role that pornography, I believe, plays in the way that so many of us who identify with BPD, we get sex all wrong in our minds and how I think it really sets us up for these disordered behaviors around sex and these really distorted beliefs that we have and expectations that we have of sex and intimacy and how I also think it's robbed so many of us in the millennial and gen z generation specifically from really learning what our own sexuality even is without the influence of pornography and if you're anything like me if you are a member of gen z or the millennial generations you have been exposed to pornography at a very young age and i want you to know listener, if you are coming across my podcast for the first time on this episode, I am by no means some conservative person. I have dabbled in sex work in my life. I consider myself to be very progressive and liberal and open-minded, but I also think that we need to have very serious and critical conversations about the damage that sex work and pornography and the views of just having casual sex and hookup culture can have on those of us who are extremely emotionally sensitive and who are recovering from trauma and the very serious symptoms that come along with BPD. So I want to preface this discussion in saying that by no means am I shaming sex workers in any way. I think that there are sex workers out there who are 
individuated, they have worked on themselves, they're fully self-aware, and they can pursue a career in sex work where they are not harming themselves or other people. I also believe that there is a significant amount of ethical pornography that's being made, and there is a push for even more and more for that to be created too. So we're never splitting on anything. I'm not saying anything is all good or all bad, but we do need to shine a light on the more problematic nature of these industries, recognize the impact that some of this imagery has had on those of us in the millennial and Gen Z generations and how we can begin to unpack that and potentially heal from the damage that it's caused. Now, what sparked this thought for me? I've talked plenty about sex as self-harm. I've talked plenty about sex work in previous episodes, but we haven't really talked about porn. And what sparked this for me was two things. One, a conversation with one of my best friends in the world about her constant use of pornography in masturbating and how she felt like she kind of needed it to get off. And then also how she's wanting to back away from pornography use because she feels like it's damaging her ability to connect with real people and her real partner who she's about to marry. And then... This week, as if by just (laughs) divine coincidence, I came across this interview with singer Billie Eilish that she did on the Howard Stern show in 2021, where she talked about the impact that porn has had on her as a member of Gen Z. So I'm going to play this piece of the interview where Billie discusses the impact porn has had on her life. As a woman, I think porn is a disgrace, and I used to watch a lot of porn, to be honest. I started watching porn when I was like 11. I thought that's how you learned how to have sex. I was watching um, abusive porn, to be honest, you know, when I was like 14, and Mm. I, you know, thought I was one of the guys and would talk about it and think it was really cool for, for, for not having a problem with it and not seeing why it was bad and... I think it really destroyed my brain, and um, I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn. I think that I had, like, sleep paralysis and these, like, almost, like, night terror slash just nightmares because of it. I think that's how they started, because I would just watch abusive BDSM. I couldn't watch anything else, like, unless it was violent. I, like, didn't think it was attractive. And I, had, I was a virgin. I, I had never done anything. And, and so I, I le- it, it led to problems where, you know, the first, the first few times I, you know, had sex, I was not saying no to things that were not good. And it's because I thought that that's what I was supposed to be attracted to. And... I just, I am, I'm so angry that porn is so loved. The, the way that, like, vaginas look in porn is fucking crazy. No vaginas look like that. Women's bodies don't look like that. We don't come like that. We don't fucking enjoy things that are what it looks like people are enjoying. And it's how so many people think that they're supposed to learn it's how so many men think that they're supposed to be and because in porn there's no consent uh, like 
getting thrown around during sex, if you're not interested in being slapped and being choked, people are like, you're vanilla, you're soft, you're, that's not, you're boring in bed. And I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about women. Women are like, oh, I have to like being hurt to be thought of as good in bed. So there's a lot to unpack here in what Billy's saying. And my first reaction in hearing this was the anger. She talks about the anger she feels because she knows that this made a huge impact on her. And I want to start by saying too, maybe some people aren't impacted by pornography and that's okay too. Because Billy, what I'm noticing also in the way she's speaking about this is there is a lot of splitting involved. So I want to call that out and we're going to unpack it. But I think there's so much important information in what she's saying. And I think it's really brave and powerful that she's coming out and talking about this, especially since she has a lot of younger fans, because I think it's worth speaking about. So let's dive into what she's sharing here. She said that she started watching porn when she was 11. And I think it's important to note that many of us are in the same boat. I think that I saw my first like pornographic images when I was a similar age. We had very few controls on the internet when I was growing up because it was all just starting out. I was, when I was 11, it was about 2001. And we had internet in school and people were accessing porn on school computers. There are much better firewalls now. But I remember there was porn that me and my friends were looking at as young as 11 and 12. We were in AOL instant messenger chat rooms where I know that me and my young 11 and 12 year old female friends were absolutely talking to super old men in random AOL instant messenger chat rooms and really sexual stuff was being said to us. I've mentioned before that when I grew up in like the year 2000 to 2004, five, like and on up, like that was the wild west of the internet. Our parents had no idea what we were doing and I know it made huge impact on me. It made me not only that, we need to remember what was happening in these time periods. Like this was the time of America's Next Top Model of reality TV was blowing up. And I just remember being barraged with images of like big, huge fake boobs, super skinny, super tan, long blonde hair extensions. Like, and there were like, Nickelback videos where like girls were just in tiny low-rise skirts gyrating around and it was hyper sexualized nature of being a girl and I'm speaking from my own experience by the way so I'm speaking as a you know cisgendered heterosexual woman and I can only imagine the impact that that also had on everybody else however they identify seeing that as the standard and what was the light that was being shined on it there was no other illumination of any other experiences no other types of bodies no other types of races very few depictions of other sexualities other than maybe like a hyper stereotypical view of a gay man maybe that's all that i would see and 
I can't imagine how it would feel to be a heterosexual man growing up in that too because it's almost like if you don't identify with this hyper-masculine image, then you're also not really a man. And Zaz, my partner, is someone who has talked to me about this experience. He is someone who does not at all identify with this alpha male archetype and he felt very alienated in the imagery of this time. So I'm just trying to set the scene of what it looked like when we were growing up in this wild west of the internet. And although Billy is younger than me, I'm 32 now, still she grew up in a very similar type of environment. She also mentions how she thought that was how she would learn how to have sex. And the very stark reality is is that so many of us who've grown up in these generations, that's how we learned what sex was. Our parents' generation, they had whispers, I'm sure, of, and there were, you know, Playboy magazines and all of these things, but it was more like passed on, like word of mouth, I would imagine. But for those of us in my generation and in the Gen Z generation, hardcore porn is just like one click away and it's really hard to filter for like beautiful well-produced ethical pornography that has a realistic depiction of what sex is sex is awkward it is messy it is not at all like what is depicted in pornography and so already when that's what we're exposed to at a very young age we are being robbed of what sex would be like if we just experienced it organically for the first time. So sex is a horrible form of sex ed. But for those of us who grew up in this time too, what we have is this like weird dichotomy. I can speak from my own experience. On one hand, I have like hardcore porn one click away and that's what all me and my friends had access to. And then in like sixth and eighth grade were the only two times that I can remember having any form of sex education. And what that looked like was in sixth grade, we got split into two rooms, boys and girls. The boys went with the male teacher. The girls went with the female teacher. We all talked about our periods and make sure to use condoms. It wasn't quite like Mean Girls (laughs) where you know the scene of the teacher and mean girls everyone's aware of this scene don't have sex because you will get pregnant and die don't have sex in the missionary position don't have sex standing up just don't do it promise okay everybody take some rubbers <laughs> so my experience in sex ed wasn't quite like that but it was very lacking in reality so it was just very clinical very here are the body parts make sure you use protection that's it Boop. Then again in eighth grade, I had another class where we had sex ed and it was just a very similar experience. Very clinical. I think we actually did the putting the condom on the banana thing, like so stereotypical. And that was it. And so what I'm trying to illuminate here is this bizarre experience that so many of us had where we either have on one hand super explicit pornography that is set up with people that fit the perfect beauty standard at the time that are doing 
doing sex that are having sex in the most extreme ways and nothing natural about it and then we have on the other hand this very clinical stiff awkward experience that we have from the real people in our life our teachers our mentors and if you're anything like me at home it was just don't talk about it right and if there was a sex scene on the tv growing up it was like either we would all sit there watching it in like awkward silence and waiting for it to be over I just remember like sex scenes coming on on the tv and just being like oh my god let it be over or we would all start to make like awkward conversation until it was over so it's understandable why kids adolescents are like starving for real depictions of sex and they don't have any of it so porn became like the user manual the how-to guide and we are naturally curious about sex as kids and adolescents i think that's another thing that freaks parents out i talked about this on the podcast before but i think adults they get to this point where they forget what it was like to be a teenager and exploring your body and being confused by the sensations that you have and I know so many of my friends that I've spoken to they said that they came across like really extreme porn they were really confused by how it turned them on they felt this weird mixture of shame that they were turned on by it but then they weren't exposed to other more normal depictions of intimacy it's a very confusing shameful experience and it makes me so sad that young people don't have anyone to talk to because if I could go back in time and talk to my younger self or younger Billie Eilish saying hey it's normal there's always going to be porn out there but this is not what everybody's body looks like and also the first time you have sex it's probably going to be kind of awkward and it might be messy and stinky and you might (laughs) feel like you don't know what to do and you don't have to perform and the best thing that you can do is start to become familiar with touching your own body and what feels good for you and I think that that would help a lot but I feel so deeply for young Billie Eilish and young Molly and young each and every one of you because we were really deprived of any real middle path We always talk about BPD and splitting, but we're splitting as a society on sex because we either have crazy conservative view where don't talk about it, whatever, don't do it, or we have wild, in the darkness, brutal porn. Where is the middle path? It feels like there is no middle path. And so I feel like young people feel like they have to pick one of these two extremes and you don't have to. Another thing I want to talk about is how much I felt like when I was a young person, like when you began dating someone or you started liking someone, especially as a teenager, it was almost like the natural endpoint was sex or intimacy. Like how far have you gone? That was a definition of how close or how intimate you were with someone. I also feel like young people are starving for what is the definition of real intimacy? It's really getting to know someone. It's really feeling comfortable with them and hugging and touching and kissing and 
taking things slowly so that it actually means something because I feel like that's what leads to so many of us having sex for the first time and being like, is that it? Or like, that's not what I imagined. It's because none of us, well, very few of us actually understood what the benefit of building intimacy over time slowly and getting to really know your partner so that then you can have sex and it can be intimacy building and fun and kind of funny and goofy, right? It doesn't have to be this weird performative thing that matches exactly what you see in porn. And we also are told you need to be having sex by this age or you're not cool. You need to be having sex this many times a week or your relationship is over. That's another thing that I wish I had more role models talking to me about because as I get older, I realize everybody's sex drive is different. Everybody's libido is different. It fluctuates throughout your life and throughout the month if you are a woman or or man. I can only speak for my own personal experience. It's a fluctuating thing. And it doesn't say anything about the quality of your relationship. Now, something that I want to bring up, Billy also mentions that she was watching extremely abusive BDSM porn. And she really talks about that being a bad thing. Now, this is where I think she's splitting a little bit. Because here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with BDSM. And ironically, members, adult members of kink communities are extremely focused on consent they talk deeply about their own sexual impulses and desires and this is an adult world where consent is actually very important but where i think billy is right is that it sucks and is so sad sucks is sort of like a crappy way to put it but it's horrible that young kids are being exposed to this kind of stuff before they can understand what kink even is and understand what consent even is and so kids are very black and white like as teenagers so it's like if that's what we're seeing that's what we think sex is and so we think that if we're not meeting that standard then we're not good at sex or we're not attractive And it really is that simple. As teens and adolescents, what we want is to be accepted and to be doing things right. And so if we're force-fed this imagery of extremely violent porn and we're missing the nuance of kink and consent and all of this, we end up in positions where we have young people like Billie Eilish feeling like porn, quote, destroyed her brain. Something else that I think is interesting that she brings up is that she said that she couldn't get off unless she was watching this abusive porn and it wasn't attractive to her unless she was watching something really extreme. And I've heard this a lot from personal friends of mine as well as it being written about in BPD forums and other places on the internet and it was true for myself too. It can be really easy to get down this porn rabbit hole and I want to be clear everybody's watching porn no matter how you identify but for some reason i feel like no one talks about how much women actually watch porn too and it is happening i speak to i have lots of female friends and most of them have watched porn some of them have become addicted to porn some of them have felt like they actually can't get off in 
regular sex with their partner because porn has made them have such extreme expectations and it's almost like they can't get off unless they're watching something really extreme and I think that that's a really important point to be made and she said Billie Eilish said that she was a virgin watching all this stuff and it really made it difficult for her the first few times that she had sex because she says quote I was not saying no to things that were quote not good and it's because that's what I thought I was supposed to be attracted to and the things that she deems quote not good is this violent BDSM stuff and I want to reiterate again there's nothing wrong with like rough play and sex and she's deeming this stuff not good I think what's not good is that she thought this is what she had to do to perform right she felt like she had to do this to be perceived as attractive it wasn't like a natural kink that she wanted to pursue and I think that's the problem Billy also says, in porn, there's no consent. Again, I think that's a comment that is splitting a little bit because in a lot of porn, there is consent. These are consenting adults who have signed up to be paid to do a job. But there's also a dark side of the porn and sex work industry where there isn't consent in certain situations. There are underage people being forced to perform sexually. That's another matter entirely. But for her to say there's no consent in porn, that's not exactly true. She also says, quote, if you're not interested in being slapped or choked, you're labeled as vanilla. I have to like being hurt to be thought of as good in bed. This makes me really sad that this is her reality. And I also felt a similar way in my younger years. My view of sexuality has just completely changed in the last three or four years for the better, for myself. I've found something that works for me. But it makes me so sad because I know how she feels. I was that girl that felt like I had to be down for anything. Or I almost felt like I performed to be more hypersexual because I thought that's what guys wanted. And it makes me sad to think about all of us people out here in the world who are performing sexually. Like, I'll take a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman just as an example for this. You've got a girl on one hand thinking that she has to perform to be down for anything. And then you have this guy on the other hand too who is thinking... He needs to be this hyper-masculine person that's going to like throw a girl around. And then where in that is what they truly want? What would they have truly demonstrated in their sexual lives? How would they have evolved sexually as, as sexual beings without all of these societal frameworks that were forced upon them by not only porn, but just mainstream media in general the the images that we are forced that are forced down our throats on a daily basis what would we think was attractive if we weren't spoon-fed what should be attractive billy also says you know vaginas don't look like that it's fucking crazy women's bodies don't look like that again splitting some women's bodies do look like that (laughs) 
some and I don't know what she's talking about but I'm imagining she's talking about you know the what she sees as the perfect vagina and vulvas vagina is actually um the channel through which a child is born what I think Billy is referencing is a vulva it is like what you see on the outside of a woman's body that we all often refer to as vagina colloquially vulvas look very very different they look so so different and because we've been force-fed in porn this like perfect little like barbie looking vulva that is like sometimes surgically created to look that way it causes a lot of shame around our bodies as a woman and you really do have to wonder what would be seen as attractive if we weren't force-fed these images for me i really love the pre-raphaelite and renaissance era of paintings and if you really think about it remember the images of women let's not even talk about how whitewashed it all was you didn't see really a diversity in terms of race but when you look back at older paintings of the women's body for example it was much softer it was not necessarily this stick thin cyborg you know kim kardashian bella hadid clone image that you see now you saw women with more prominent noses you saw women with rolls and cellulite you saw just more realistic looking bodies and these were seen as beautiful but now we are force-fed with this one image i think it's kind of cool because we're in a different place now than even we were when i was growing up in the early 2000s which i felt was very much like that nickelback video girl which is like huge rock solid fake tits and super skinny super tan long blonde hair extensions low-rise jeans with a thong sticking out like it was just that was the vibe i feel like we are making progress in terms of expanding but we kind of are just swapping one ideal beauty standard for another i don't know how we can fix that but it is the reality why i want to bring this up And why I think our quote from Epictetus at the beginning of this episode, that Stoic philosopher, is actually quite timely for this discussion of porn, is that two things have really helped me develop a better relationship with my own sexuality is, on one hand, realizing the things that we can and can't control. We can't control how the beauty standard is we can't control the fact that there is in existence pornography like this but what we can control is our awareness of everything that we're discussing today the true awareness that sexuality is messy funny awkward and doesn't look like porn we can look at porn and say that's not reality we can teach our children that that's not reality we can have open conversations about sex with our friends with our kids with ourselves with our partners and talk about the impact that these stereotypical roles and the impact that porn and mainstream media have had on us and the people we love and if you open up conversation that 
removes that shame? Can you be the person that can go to a friend or family member this week or even maybe your child if they are of age to talk about this and open up a dialogue that helps them feel like there is a middle path. They don't have to gravitate to one of these extremes. Help illuminate them and help them become more aware that sexuality is dynamic and they need to learn what they like and learn to explore their own body and learn that when you develop a relationship with someone, it's not just sex. It's not just like, okay, we're dating and then it is boom sex. It's about developing intimacy, learning to get to know someone and that Sex doesn't make you necessarily feel closer to someone unless there are a lot of other things in the mix of that too. Like learning about one another, loving the person that they are, loving them for who they are. That's what makes sex a bonding activity. Without the elements of acceptance and love and slowly developing intimacy over time, Sex can be quite empty and meaningless. And I'm not saying that there are people out there who really do just want to casually hook up and they just want to have sex. They've got a really high sex drive. But I'm speaking to my audience who are made up mostly of very sensitive people who are overcoming trauma, who have felt like they may be using sex as a way to connect with someone and then they're left feeling very confused because sex isn't achieving that for them i'm speaking to you so it's my hope that this deeper sense of self-awareness these open conversations can be something that can help you reduce your shame that can help inspire you to find out what sexuality means to you this is a great episode to potentially share a partner or someone that you want to open up a dialogue with because I know how hard it can be to start these conversations maybe you just share it with the person that you want to talk about it with and say hey can you listen to this because I'd really love to talk to you about it or if you feel even more comfortable you can listen to it together and pause it and discuss we need to talk to one another and not let mainstream media or pornography set the tone for what intimacy is in our lives because I really think that it is contributing to a lot of shame, a lot of lack of self-awareness, and a lot of people feeling like maybe sex just isn't for me or maybe this is all that it is. There are studies that are coming out over the last couple of years showing that young people are having less and less sex, like by a long shot. And that doesn't surprise me because I feel like young, the younger generation are seeing through all of this. They're like, I don't want that. If that's what sex is, I don't want it. If that's what being a woman is, I don't want it. And I think it is the lack of these nuanced conversations that is contributing to that. So I hope that that was helpful for you. Open up the conversation, start talking, normalize these things, and Realize that you can only control yourself and your reactions and your levels of self-awareness. A lot of our suffering comes from just blindly following what's spoon-fed to us. 
And when you start becoming aware of those things and aware of the impact that this stuff is having and opening up conversations with people you love, then you can realize how big of an impact that has on your ability to enjoy your life so much more. All right, so if you're a premium subscriber, you will want to pause the podcast now because I will be giving a preview of this week's bonus episode at this point. You will have full access to the premium episode, so you want to head over to your private feed and check that one out at this point. So I'm going to end the episode this week by giving you a sneak peek of this week's premium episode. As you know, there is a rampant amount of stigmatized content about people with BPD online. And I haven't done this before, but I found this account on YouTube called BPD Breakup and Codependency Recovery. And this channel is created by a Canadian woman who calls herself a mental health and trauma recovery coach. She positions herself as someone who helps other people, primarily people who suffer with CPTSD, help them recover from borderline abuse. And she released a video, it's actually quite old, but I think that what she shares encapsulates so much of the misinformation about BPD that I wanted to play it and react to it because we can throw some of this stigmatized bullshit out of the window once and for all. So now we'll just be diving straight into the audio of the first part of this week's premium episode. I hope you enjoy. Why I'm doing this is to shine a light on this information and hopefully help some of you who see this bullshit out there and when you see it instead of making it you feel like crap about yourself especially if you have a formal diagnosis you can just say whatever i know better than this and you can take the high road and move forward one thing that i wouldn't want any of my premium subbies to be doing is getting into any kind of online argument with anyone like this because As we mentioned on this week's public feed episode, remember what you can control is yourself, your reactions, and the things you do. You're not going to change or convince anyone else and getting into these types of online spats and trying to reduce the stigma by getting in fights with people like this is going to do nothing but disrupt your peace. So without further ado, let's just get into this bullshit, shall we? The video is called... BPD abuse traumatizes loved ones, and it was posted on May 31st, 2017. This thing has 20,000 views, and the description of the video is, if you are in any type of relationship with an untreated person with borderline personality disorder, they will abuse you. What you might hope for as love is actually traumatizing abuse. You need to focus on yourself and any children involved People with BPD who do not seek help actively will wound anyone who is close to them. Big sigh. But anyway, let's just go ahead and dive into it. In this video, I'd like to talk a little bit more about 
the um, crucial reasons why people who are the partners or friends or adult children or you know all the different relationships um, that you could be in or might have been in with someone with borderline personality disorder. I just wanted to say in this video um, that it's really important that people realize why they're trapped, what's keeping them invested, engaged, and stuck in trying to rescue somebody with borderline personality disorder who does not want or is not seeking help or does not admit that they have BPD or has been diagnosed and doesn't take it seriously or thinks, you know, is just actively sort of in the throes of BPD as I call it, which means that they are not looking at anything they're doing themselves or lacking self-awareness or self-awareness is very fleeting. All right, let's just, skirt. let's pause it right there. The first problematic thing that I'm hearing here is that She's even perpetuating this whole armchair psychology shit. This video absolutely has people watching it that just suspect that the person that they're dealing with has quote-unquote BPD. And she says if you suspect that they're in the throes of BPD, how can we diagnose anyone with a personality disorder? Not only that, the people watching this video, nor this woman, I'm sure, do they know how personality disorders are even decided upon in the DSM? Do they know that there's very little scientific evidence to show that these diagnoses are even a thing? At the end of the day, what we're talking about here are two people that should probably not be in a relationship, and if you are in a relationship where you're being abused, you should work towards getting yourself safe and you're removing yourself from that environment rather than focus on BPD abuse and what that means. As we talked about before, what can you control about yourself? We can't control other people. So that's just the first problematic thing I'm hearing here is how so much of this quote-unquote BPD and narcissistic abuse content that circulates online, it is really based in a lot of armchair psychology, armchair diagnosing. In other words, people throwing psychiatric disorder labels on other people when they have no type of credential and they're missing the point, which is you should be focusing on yourself, what you can control, and if you are being abused, that's valid, but why do we need to start armchair diagnosing people with personality disorders when we have no credentials? And these types of videos perpetuate that type of problematic behavior. And you're being abused, and maybe some people don't realize yet, but traumatized by a person with borderline personality disorder, whether it's silent treatment or rage, acting out, different behaviors, threats. It's all punishment. Punishment and revenge. And for what? What the fuck is she even talking about? <laughs> she mentions that these boogeyman people with BPD, if you're being abused and by their rage and anger, and she said that people with BPD, this rage and anger comes from a desire to enact punishment and get revenge. 
this perpetuates another really harmful bit of stigmatizing misinformation, which is that one, people with BPD who've been formally diagnosed or who display symptoms are all lumped into one category where they are these manipulative, punishment-seeking, vengeful, awful human beings that want to cause destruction in everybody's lives. People with BPD diagnoses and who identify with the symptoms are in so much internal pain. And I know when I was at the depths of my suffering that when I did do things that harmed the people I loved, whether that was because of my splitting or really explosive rage, I felt so much shame and it killed me to know that I was hurting the people that I love. That does not excuse anything whatsoever. I have not personally in my life ever put my hands on anyone else. I've never acted out in violence, but absolutely my emotional reactions, I think, have instilled fear and nervousness and created abusive environments for people in my life and it's inexcusable but what I was not was this vengeful manipulative angry person I felt so helpless and if I could have done anything to change it I would and painting everybody with BPD with this manipulative abusive brushstroke as this woman is doing again extremely harmful extremely problematic and it doesn't help anyone it doesn't help the people in this video that are coming to this video um, seeking help and it doesn't help people with BPD. So who does it help? No one. Because it's all just, it's so misinformed. And so what I've noticed on the internet lately, not this lately, but for years and growing, I think, which is from my humble opinion, not a positive thing for people in relationships to those in relationship to those with BPD, depending if they're getting help or not, though I want to stress that. But if they're not getting help, and there's still too many people who don't want to get help or don't know how to go through the process or don't want to face what that means. Ugh, again, I feel like I'm going to be stopping this a lot. So there's one little silver lining here is that she sort of alludes to people that want to get help there is more hope but it's not is that not the same for anyone an addict an alcoholic who doesn't want to get help it makes it pretty difficult to have a relationship with that person someone who is addicted to gambling is a sex addict is i don't know has any sort of vice that is causing destruction in their life and making it difficult for them to form intimate relationships, it sure is a lot better when they want to get help. You can't help someone that doesn't want help. Then if they're not getting help and they are acting out and they are right fighting and they are abusing you, therefore they are traumatizing you, what people need to know is that all over the internet or maybe in a couple of books out there, all the things that you're supposed to be able to do, it's a little bit different with parents of adult children with BPD, somewhat, but still the same challenges. But all these sort of messages out there from all kinds of different sources that say, 
well, you know, you should stay with them and work with them and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and sort of help change them or people think they can change this person that they love and that, they, and you do love the person, but you're loving someone who they presented to you that they aren't really. And, and then the cognitive dissonance kicks in. So the basic message in this message in this video is that unless someone is getting really engaged in and getting treatment for borderline personality disorder, same goes for narcissistic personality disorder, mid-range, what can be treated, um, unless there, this person in your life with a cluster B personality disorder is getting treatment, then you have to radically accept what's happening. <sighs> what? <laughs> okay. Can we just say one thing? First, she's rambling, and I'm sorry, but this is why I want to play this because thousands of people are watching this, and this woman is just rambling her ass off, clearly has no idea what she's talking about. She mentions, she says, people with narcissistic personality disorder mid-range. What in the fuck is mid-range narcissistic personality disorder? Spoiler alert, it's not a thing, so I have no idea what she's talking about there. But she also mentions that there's a lot of resources out there that give this message that you should stay with an abusive person and work with them and help change them. I have never encountered any helpful resources for anyone who identifies with BPD that are trauma-informed information that says that you should stay with someone who's abusing you. I've never seen that. What I have seen is that if you are being abused or if you feel unsafe, you should get yourself safe and that you can't control anyone but yourself. That's it. And how reactive have you become? How much of yourself are you losing? And I'm going to be doing a lot more on this. And what happens to people in these relationships is that the loved ones and non-personality disorder, people that don't have borderline personality disorder, they're with people with borderline personality disorder, they start to lose their way. They start to lose their sense of boundaries. Then they start to lose a sense of self. You may well have been through this. And then they can't believe what they've been through and they can't believe the pain they're in. And they may have reacted in ways with anger or reacted in ways that were sort of what I call, you know, the non-borderline or, or loved one becoming borderline like by proxy what in the actual fuck <laughs> this episode's gonna have to be marked as explicit i've been doing my best to hold my fucks in but i just can't i can't i can't even with this there is so much bullshit how this one person can fit so much bullshit in like a 15 second time frame i mean she deserves an award let's unpack just what we just experienced there the non-personality disordered person just starts to lose their way they start to lose their sense of boundaries and sense of self you want to know why this happens when people find themselves watching bullshit resources like this is because people that are watching stuff like this are spending more of their one and precious life trying to armchair diagnose someone with a personality disorder than focusing on their own lack of boundaries, their own 
obsession, like their own savior complex and their inability to wonder why they continue to keep finding themselves in trauma-bonded relationships. That's the T. That's the real T. The next bullshit piece here is she says, this is where my mind, like, I wish... I need to start recording at my own YouTube video reactions because I feel like you need to see my face when I'm watching this stuff because she says that the non-borderlined person starts to react in anger or ways that are what she calls borderline by proxy. And by proxy essentially means that somehow the quote-unquote evil goblin borderline person is turning this poor innocent person into a borderline person by their own behavior now that is some bullshit talk about not wanting to take any accountability whatsoever this is not what she's describing is this poor victim non-borderline person being turned into this evil monster that they otherwise wouldn't be if they weren't with someone with borderline personality disorder. That is just so harmful. I think each and every one of us know and have had an experience where we've been in such a toxic relationship where both of our traumas are bumping up against one one another and we act in ways that we never thought we could because of anger and our abandonment issues and things that happened in our childhood that are just kind of exploding into awareness when we are in a really vulnerable situation, which is an intimate relationship. But the fact that this woman is telling people who are clearly in pain, which are people that are coming to this video, and telling them that someone with BPD can like turn them into a borderline, like what what is someone with BPD, like a zombie, like we bite you and you turn into an evil borderline? It's just... It's insane. Because this is so traumatizing when somebody isn't getting help and you're being abused and traumatized, but you're trying to help them and rescue them. And a key thing in all this is that if the person can hear you sometimes, this is what usually happens. You're about ready to give up or you're about ready to leave or you're about ready to set a bunch of boundaries at least. And then they're like, oh, you know, I don't know. Sometimes people with BPD can apologize. They can mean it too. And they can gain, have awareness in a moment. Like, wow, yeah, like I just did that. And they might hear what you're saying to them. But then next trigger that comes, boom, it's gone. And people are getting trapped and having false hope by these fleeting moments of awareness that people who aren't seeking help that have BPD often will have that no they're not just saying what you want to hear there's like a flash of awareness there but if they don't ever act on that to have that take them further into the you know recovery and healing process of actual real change okay I'm gonna give her one thing here is that What is unhelpful is when anyone who's struggling with their mental health, but this can be the same thing as a chronic cheater, an alcoholic, where you have a really big blow up. Say, for instance, someone cheats on you. You find out and they say, baby, I'll never do it again. And then you forgive them. They cheat on you. Same thing happens. And they say, oh my God, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. Can they feel bad? 
But if someone continues to do something over and over again, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a toxic monster, but it does mean that clearly it has not clicked in their mind. They can say sorry, but they're not actually putting recovery into process. They're not taking the genuine steps to move forward. But what I just don't like is that things like this, they just paint people with BPD or cluster B personality disorders as like this ostracized like zombie leper class of people. This is no different. It's just people with trauma. And she again, it really encourages this victim complex in the people that are watching her video because she goes, I understand because there are points where you're about ready to set up boundaries, you're about ready to leave the relationship. And then sometimes people with BPD can apologize. They can mean it too. Like it's like perpetuating this narrative that the people with BPD are these black widows that are reeling this poor innocent victim back in. When in reality, these are two people that are doing this toxic dance with one another. There's one person who's like playing Captain Savaho and saying like, I'm going to be your savior. I'm going to fix you. And I'm not going to do any kind of self-awareness exercise of figuring out why I continue to find myself in trauma bonding and abusive relationships. And then you have maybe the person with BPD or doesn't even have BPD and they're just being armchair diagnosed where they are being demonized as someone who is the only problem. There's a reason why family systems therapy exists and it's because there are it's never really just one person that's the problem. It is the entire family system. It's the entire relationship system, which is there are two people in a relationship and each of you are holding up some of the toxic dynamics. And what I don't like about content like this is that it perpetuates that one person is the problem. And so if you are with someone who is just repeating the cycles of what I call the active throes of BPD, so, you know, being triggered, punishing, right fighting, silent treatment, you know, yelling at you, raging at you, fine one minute, not the next, then, yeah, a blunt question for you. And some people aren't ready for this, and some people really hate that I do this, and I've been taking flack on this online for now 23 years, but I'll continue to say it. Why are you still there? Now, I say that with compassion, not judgment. The question is, why are you still there? If you're, being, if you're being abused, if you're traumatized, or you might not yet recognize you're traumatized, or you're realizing that you're traumatized, but you keep trying to rescue to find the person that they showed you as if that's who they were, that you fell in love with, and it isn't who they are. And it is a great loss, and it is real, and I work with clients all the time. If you'd like to work with me in this pro, you know, process of finding yourself again because you've lost yourself to the trauma of someone with BPD or someone with NPD really, but uh, focusing on BPD here, then by all means, you know, like check out my website, ajmahari.ca or phoenixrisingpublications.com. Book a session. No, no, we do not want to book a session with you. No. Because people, too many people, are reading information in books that say, but you should stay with them. 
You should validate them. And if you can't validate them, just don't invalidate them. What books is she talking about? If I were sitting there, I'd be like, what are these books? Books upon books upon books, books on books, resources on resources that are saying that people should stay with abusive partners. Because I haven't come across one at all. And she says that you should just validate, validate, validate. That's another thing. Yeah, we should all validate one another. Everybody needs validation. But validation is not an excuse for abuse. And this is why unqualified, misinformed people like her are confusing the shit out of people online with channels like hers. You know, and I have great compassion for people with DPD as well. Sure as shit doesn't sound like it, but go off. But you can't rescue them. You can't save them. You can't make them want to get help. You can't make anyone get help that doesn't want help. You can't make an alcoholic get help, a sex addict get help, anyone get help that doesn't want to get help, not just people with BPD, and especially not people that you are diagnosing with BPD when you have no credentials. And and there's so many other obstacles that keep people trapped. So you don't want to lose yourself entirely to this person that isn't who you really thought they were. It's who that you thought they were that you fell in love with. What does that... Okay, what she just said is reminding me of this clip. Okay, this is what she sounds like to me right now. Have you ever had a dream that that you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so you you do you could you you want you want him to do you so much you could do anything? Yeah, that's what she's giving me right now with this weird ass rambly shit. So just a quick message for you to think about today. What about you? Where are you at? Are you losing yourself? Have you suffered trauma? Are you aware of that? Are you more angry? Are you less yourself? Are you more stressed out? Are you trying to rescue and change this person so that the relationship will work out or the family can stay together? Because that doesn't work. And you need to take care of yourself. True. All of what she just said right there, I think is the most true advice. And she could have shortened this entire video just with that 20 seconds of speaking. Prioritize yourself, get yourself safe, and stop trying to change someone else that doesn't want to change. Period. So I've been long known on the internet as the one who always says, oh, you should just leave them, just leave them, just leave them. Well, clearly if they're not getting any help and you've been around. All right. That is the first half of this week's premium episode. We get even further into it. I lose my shit even more as we dive into that video. And if you want to hear the other half of that episode, you can do that by becoming a premium subscriber at backfromtheborderline.com and clicking unlock premium access. Or you can go ahead and just open up the episode description of this episode and click the link at the bottom. And this week, try your best to not sweat the small stuff try to focus on what you can control and that is putting some space between those big amazing feelings and your reactions love you lots
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.